This message was presented at the GYC 2012 conference in Seattle, Washington. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Let's bow our heads together as we pray tonight. Father in heaven, it's the last night of 2012. We have another year. The unwritten pages of history are before us. What better place to be than right here? Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would be in this place. That we would get a glimpse of the sacrifice that Christ made for us on Calvary and that that would compel us to respond. Father, we pray tonight that you would grant us a divine passion to take the gospel to the world in this generation. Lord, we recognize that before men and angels that we are a spectacle unto the universe and we pray tonight that you would be in this place, that your Holy Spirit would be poured out. Hide me behind the cross. May Jesus be seen. May Christ be uplifted. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Tonight, before we open our Bibles, I want to be very clear from the beginning that tonight's message is in the context of last night's presentation. As a minister of the gospel, it's always been my passion and burden to always give us a picture of what God has done for us before presenting what we must do in response. God never asks us to do anything, no matter the sacrifice, without first presenting to us what Christ did for us on Calvary. Amen? And so I want us to remember tonight as we open our Bibles that it's in the context of Christ being our motivation. that the subjective response is to the objective passion of God for us. And so tonight, very quickly, I'd like to give us a panoramic picture of the rapid expansion in the book of Acts. I pray tonight that you have brought your Bibles because especially tonight, in order for this message to be the most meaningful, you're going to need your Bibles. Last night we spent the majority of our time in one passage, Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to be going to multiple passages here tonight, and I'd like to begin in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, a panoramic picture of the rapid expansion in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, 
and verse 41 and 47. Please turn with me there. Acts chapter 2, verse 41 and 47. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were what? Were what? Were added to them. Verse 47, praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord, what? Added to the church daily those who were being saved. Acts chapter 4 and verse 4. How many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. Rapid expansion, rapid growth, baptisms, churches being raised up. Acts chapter 5 and verse 14. And the believers were increasingly what? Are you awake tonight, GYC? I know it's been a long conference, but... And the believers were increasingly what? Added to the Lord multitudes of both men and women. Acts chapter 6 and verse 7. Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and great many of the priests were obedient to the, pra- to the faith. Acts chapter 9, verse 31. Then the churches throughout Judea, Galilee, Samaria had peace and were edified and walking in the fear of the Lord, in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, and they were multiplied. The word of God spread. There were many people added to the church. There was exponential growth multiplied. Acts chapter 12, verse 24. But the word of God grew and multiplied. Acts chapter 16, verse 5. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in numbers daily. Acts chapter 19, verse 20. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. Acts chapter 28, last chapter of the book of Acts, talking about Paul, Acts chapter 28, verse 30 and 31. Then Paul dwelt two whole years in his own rented house and received all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no one forbidding him. We're seeing rapid expansion in the book of Acts, added, words like multiplied, increased, daily, spread, grew, 
Paul alone traveled over 10,000 miles, spearheading unprecedented growth in the early Christian church. Baptisms, church plants, miracles, they took the gospel to the world in their generation. Paul could write with his own pen that the gospel had gone to every creature under heaven. The landscape of the entire Roman Empire was dramatically changed in one generation. Acts of the Apostles. The disciples were overjoyed and astonished at the greatness of the harvest of souls. Listen to this. They did not regard this wonderful ingathering as the results of their own efforts. Let me read that again. They did not regard this wonderful ingathering as a result of their own efforts. <coughs> they realized they were entering into other men's labors. This was the harvest. It would have been very exciting to live during the time of Acts. Rapid expansion, multiple baptisms. But we need to recognize here tonight that these are the fruits of revelation. Fruits of revolution, I should say. These are the results of revolution. And in order for us to understand the fruits of revolution, we need to understand the roots. We need to understand the beginning and the origin. And if, if you want to understand Seventh-day Adventism, biblical Christianity, we need to understand Genesis 1. Amen? If we came from evolution, it dramatically changes our identity. Origins is linked with identity. That's why children that are separated from their parents at an early age, when they get to a certain age, they want to find their parents. Why? Because in finding their parents, there's an element of finding themselves. When we're looking at the results of revolution, rapid growth, rapid expansion, we need to recognize that these are the fruits and not the roots. In order for us to understand the book of Acts, we need to go to the DNA, the origins of this revolution, what made it possible. This was the harvest. I'd like to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 1, verse 12 through 22. We're able to see a hint into the roots of revolution in the book of Acts. The disciples recognized that this was not the result of their own labors, that they were building upon the efforts of other men that had gone before them. Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 22. Verses 12 through 22. 
Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which was near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were standing, Peter, James, John, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. They all continued in one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and, the, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. And in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. Altogether, the number of the names was about 120 and said, Men and brother, Scripture hath been fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who were arrested, those who rusted Jesus. For he was numbered with us and obtained a part of this ministry. Now this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity, falling headlong, he burst open in the mist, all his entrails gushed out. And it became known to those dwelling in Jerusalem so that the field is called in their own language a keldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let this dwelling place be desolate and let no one live in it. Let another take his office. They were about to choose another apostle to replace Judas. And I want you to notice in the next verse... The qualification for being one of the original 12 apostles. These were the building blocks of the early Christian church. They were going to replace Judas, a very important selection. These individuals were going to be the pioneers of revolution. And this was the qualification. Verse 21. Therefore, of all these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, verse 22, beginning with the baptism of John to the day when he was taken up from us. The qualification for an apostle to be one of the original 12 was that you had to be there beginning with John the Baptist all the way up to the resurrection. You could not come after John the Baptist. You had to be there. That was the criteria. The roots of the book of Acts, the legacy had to be linked with the ministry, the life of John the Baptist. Weeks before GYC, I had the opportunity to pray over the phone with Pastor Wes Peppers. I really enjoyed his morning devotionals, haven't you? And we just lifted our hearts to God, asking that the Lord would fill us with His Spirit, sensing our unworthiness. Our thoughts were still gelling, and you remember on opening night, he said that the roots of revolution in the book of Acts started with John the Baptist, and I'd like to bring us full circle here tonight, recognizing 
that in the DNA of the book of Acts, his ministry was so critical, so crucial, so vital, that in order to be one of the original 12, you had to understand the legacy of the life of John the Baptist. Very quickly, I like to look at different aspects of his life. Turn with me in your Bibles to Malachi chapter 4, verse 5 and 6, last book of the Old Testament. The ministry of John the Baptist was foretold in the Old Testament. One of the places in the, is in the book of Malachi, Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. And the prophet says, Behold, I send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. The Old Testament foretold of a time the coming of Elijah, and he would prepare the way of the Lord. Turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1, verse 13 through 17. Zacharias is in the temple. An angel comes to him, Gabriel, Luke chapter 1, verse 13. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. Great in the sight of whom? Great in the sight of the Lord. And shall drink neither wine nor strong drink, and he shall be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children to the Lord their God. This is almost a direct quote of Malachi chapter 4, verse 5 and 6. Look in verse 17. And he will go out before him in the spirit and power of whom? Of Elijah. To turn, here it is, the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Mark chapter 1, verse 1 through 3, very quickly. He was to prepare a people for the coming of the Lord. Mark chapter 1, verse 1 through 3, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and as it was written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his way straight. Before there's a harvest, seeds have to be planted. But before seeds are planted, the ground has to be prepared and broken up. And this was the role of John the Baptist. He was to break the ground so that Christ could sow the seeds. Acts was the harvest. Prepare the way of the Lord. I'd just like to make three simple observations about the unique relationship that Jesus had with John the Baptist. This relationship was so unique and so unprecedented that I believe it will never be duplicated again. So unique, so unprecedented that it will be never duplicated again. 
Observation number one. Jesus and John were linked in the prenatal stages. Turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1, verse 39 through 40. Luke chapter 1, verse 39 through 40, a unique relationship between Jesus and John the Baptist. Luke chapter 1, verse 39, let's actually read to verse 45. Now Mary arose in those days and went into the hill country with haste to the city of Judah and entered into the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. Now they're both pregnant. Elizabeth is pregnant. Mary is pregnant. Verse 41, and it happened when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, listen to this, that the baby, John the Baptist, leapt in her womb. Now this gives an indication, an illusion as to how the Bible has a view of the prenatal experience and where life begins. And it happened when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, now these women are pregnant, Jesus is in the womb, John the Baptist is in the womb, and when Mary and Elizabeth meet, John the Baptist leaps in the womb of Elizabeth, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she spoke out with a loud voice and said, blessed are you among women, blessed is the fruit of your womb, for why is it granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For indeed, as soon as the voice of your greeting sounded in my ears, the babe leapt in my womb for joy. Blessed is she who believed, for there will be fulfillment of those things which were told her from the Lord. So even before birth, Jesus and John the Baptist, I can't explain it, but John the Baptist, even prior to being born into this world in the womb of Elizabeth, recognized that he was in the presence of divinity. A unique, unprecedented relationship. Observation number two. Jesus and John were ministry partners. It was a relationship of mutual respect and deference. Ministry partners, mutual respect and deference. Jesus said in John chapter, I should say John said in John chapter 3 verse 27 through 31, we won't read it, he said, he must increase and I must decrease. Jesus called John the greatest prophet that ever lived. John had the unique privilege of baptizing the Son of God. A unique relationship linked in the prenatal experience and in life, in ministry, one of mutual respect and deference. The last one is found in Luke chapter 1, verse 36. Now, Elizabeth... Your relative, some translations say, your cousin, 
has also conceived a son. Elizabeth and Mary were cousins, which means Jesus and John were second cousins. They were family. So you put all these together, the prenatal experience, ministry partners, and to top it all off, John was family. A unique, unprecedented relationship between Jesus and John the Baptist. Later on, John is thrown in prison. The prison life was very difficult for him. In Desire of Ages, it says the life of John had been one of active labor, and the gloom and inaction of his prison life weighed heavenly upon him. Heavenly upon him as week after week passed, brought no change. Despondency and doubt crept upon him. His disciples did not forsake him. They were allowed access to the prison, and they brought him tidings of the works of Jesus, and they told him how the people were flocking to him. They should have stopped there. The disciples started to question why, if this new teacher was the Messiah, he did nothing to affect John's release. Their conversation went something like this. This man's your cousin, your flesh and blood, your ministry partner. You gave up everything for this man, and here you rot in prison. Why doesn't he do anything? We need to be careful what we say to even godly men. Amen? We need to be careful when we share doubts and criticism. How could he permit his faithful herald to be deprived of liberty and perhaps life? And she goes on. These questions were not without effect. Doubts which otherwise never have arisen were suggested to John. Here was a man that stood unflinchingly for truth, lived his whole life for one purpose, to point others to Jesus Christ, stood unflinchingly for truth. He's in prison. His friends spread seeds of doubt, and it got to the place. Turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 11, verses 1 through 3. It got to the place where John sends his disciples, and I want you to notice the way this question is framed. Now, it came to pass when Jesus finished commanding his 12 disciples that he departed from there to teach and preach in their cities. And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and he said to him, look in verse 3, are you the coming one? Are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ? Or do we look for another? It had gotten from the place where John saw the dove come down from heaven and said, Behold the Lamb of God which takes away the sins of the world. And now he's gotten to the place where he's asking the question, Are you really him or should we look for someone else? This was a low point in the ministry of John the Baptist. Jesus answered him, Go and tell John the things which you hear and see. Our Lord is so merciful, full of grace 
Verse 5, the blind see, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, deaf hear, and the dead are raised to life. The poor have the gospel preached to them. In verse 6, here's a slight rebuke from, from Jesus. Blessed is he who is not offended because of me. That was enough. A few pages over, Matthew chapter 14, verse 7 through 13. It was Herod's birthday. We know the story. Verse 6, but Herod's birthday was celebrated. The daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod. Therefore, he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. So she had been prompted by her mother, give me the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was sorry, nevertheless, because of the oaths and because of those who sat with them, he commanded it to be given to her. So he sent and had John beheaded in prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. Then his disciples came, took away the body, buried it. I wonder what they were experiencing. They were burying the headless body of John the Baptist, the cousin of Jesus, flesh and blood, ministry partner, the greatest prophet that ever lived. And the Bible says, and they went and told Jesus. Could Jesus have saved John? You better believe it. Jesus was not in heaven, in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary like he is right now. Jesus was in Palestine. Jesus was not far away. He was right there. And here's a man with whom he has a relationship that is unprecedented. Unlike any other individual, you and I will never know the type of intimate relationship that Jesus had with John the Baptist just because of the nature of the work. And yet Jesus let the greatest prophet that ever lived, his own flesh and blood, die a martyr's death. Why didn't he save him? Why didn't he marshal the angels of heaven to save John the Baptist? This has puzzled Christians for years. The greatest prophet that ever lived. Here's his legacy. Desire of Ages 224. This is a challenging passage for me to read. Gladly would the Savior have come to John to brighten the dungeon gloom with his own presence. Gladly would he have delivered his faithful servant. Listen to this. 
but for the sake of thousands who in after years must pass from prison to death, John was to drink the cup of martyrdom. As the followers of Christ should languish in lowly cells, perish by the sword, the rack, the faggot, apparently forsaken by God and man, what a stay to their hearts would be the thought that John the Baptist, to whose faithfulness Christ himself had borne witness, had passed through a similar experience. This was to be the legacy of John the Baptist. John the Baptist never got married. He never had a family. He never got to hear the Sermon on the Mount. He didn't hear the parables of Christ. He didn't see the raising of Lazarus from the dead. He never saw the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He wasn't at Pentecost or Peter's sermon. He didn't see the rapid explosion of the Christian church. He lived for one purpose and one purpose alone, to break the ground so that the seeds of revolution might be sown by Jesus Christ. He lived into his 30s and died a martyr, sacrificed. Revolutions are always born in sacrifice. Revolutions are always born in radical sacrifice, suffering, and even martyrdom. Let's not romanticize revolution here this evening. It's one thing to get up here and talk about revolution, but it's another thing to pay the price. I want to be very clear here this evening. There is no merit in suffering, sacrifice, and martyrdom. It does not save us. It's just the nature of being a follower of Christ. Revelation chapter 14 verse 4 says, They follow the Lamb wherever He goes. And friends, the Lamb is going to be sacrificed. That's who we're following. The Lamb. And the Lamb is going to the slaughter. This is the nature of our work. Unto you it is given in behalf of Christ not only to believe on Him, but to suffer for His sake. The book of Acts was the harvest. But the disciples recognized that the ministry and the legacy of John the Baptist was so crucial, so pivotal, that in order to be one of the twelve apostles, you had to witness what John sacrificed. And they said, you want to be a part of the revolution? Well, this is what it's about. Revolutions are always born in sacrifice. In order for there to be a harvest, the seed has to die. And the seeds are sown in blood. Revolutions are always born in sacrifice.
I had the privilege this year of going to South Africa and going to Robben Island. Looked at the 8 by 8 cell where Nelson Mandela rotted for 27 years of his life. He became instrumental in the South African Revolution. April 3, 1968, Memphis, Tennessee. Martin Luther King Jr. gives what would be his last speech. And I want you to notice the words of what he says. He says in that famous speech, I've been to the mountaintop. Like anyone, I'd like to live. Like anyone, I'd like to live, but that doesn't matter anymore. I may not get there with you, but I've seen the promised land. A few hours later, Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. The Civil Rights Revolution. Gandhi, after five attempts, was assassinated. The revolution in India. Even secular revolutions are born in sacrifice and blood. It's the anatomy of revolution. The Protestant Revolution. Wycliffe, martyred. Huss, martyred. Jerome, martyred. Tyndale, martyred. The Christian Revolution. Jesus died on the cross. John the Baptist, martyred. Paul, martyred. Eleven out of twelve of the apostles were martyred. Tertullian says the blood of martyrs is seed. Revolution always begins with sacrifice. Henry Martin, he was a Cambridge scholar. He was a genius. Hear a sermon one day about missions, about India and the need to go there. He gave up his career and a future relationship to go there. He was dragged across the desert in chains. He died at the age of 31. But do you know what he left the world before he died? The translation of the New Testament in Hindustani, Persian, and Arabic. Jim Elliot says, He's no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. In Jim Elliot's journal, he has these words. He himself died a martyr's death in Ecuador at the age of 29. And I want you to notice the language of his words. He says, he makes his ministers a flame of fire. Am I ignitable? God deliver me from the asbestos of other things. Saturate me with the oil of the Spirit that I may be a flame. Make me the fuel, the flame of God. We're not going to revolutionize the world by conformity to it, but by our combustion within it, with the lives ignited by the Spirit of God. I want to read that again. We are not going to revolutionize the world by our conformity to it, but by our combustion within it of lives ignited by the Spirit of God. Jesus said that John was the greatest prophet. 
unprecedented. Of all the men that are born to women, there is no greater than John the Baptist. That one. Greater than Moses, who wrote the Pentateuch. Greater than Elijah, that called down fire from heaven. Greater than Daniel, Enoch, and Noah. He is the greatest. And of all the gifts that heaven can bestow upon men, Desire of Ages says, fellowship with Christ in his suffering is the most weighty trust and the highest honor. That is the greatest honor. I think we've gotten certain things mixed up about the hierarchy of heaven. We say, I want to be somebody. I'm not saying it's wrong to be ambitious for the Master's glory, but we should not seek positions, amen? And when the Lord does call us, we should answer. I've heard statements of people saying, I want to be this president or that president. I want to be this evangelist or this pastor or this speaker. I want to be great in the eyes of the Lord. I want to lead thousands to Christ. But from heaven's perspective, the Lord looks at John the Baptist and says, that man is the greatest. It's the legacy of John the Baptist, and it's the root of revolution. Every revolution is born in sacrifice. Fellowship with Christ in his suffering is the highest honor. The mother of Jesus, I should say the mother of James and John came to Jesus. He said, she said to Jesus, when you come in your kingdom, can my two boys sit one on your right hand and the other on your left I want them to be great. I want them to be the closest to you. You remember what Jesus said, are you able to drink of the cup that I'm going to drink of? They said, yes, Lord. And he said, you will indeed drink of that cup. James was the first to be martyred. John lived the longest of all, suffering privation, loneliness, and exile. I'll be honest with you here tonight. Tonight's message has been very difficult for me as a minister of the gospel to swallow. I question in my own heart of hearts, whether I know what it is to really sacrifice. And I also recognize that there are people in this room that God will call to follow in the path of John the Baptist. Revolution always begins with radical sacrifice. This revolution is going to happen, amen? But it will be in sacrifice. The revolution that began in sacrifice will end in sacrifice.
I want to invite you to stand with me as we prepare to pray and, and close this evening. Before we bow our heads and pray, I want to make a very simple appeal here tonight. It's not an appeal for martyrdom. The Lord will take care of you when that time comes. But large sacrifices begin with smaller sacrifices. And tonight, perhaps someone in this room, the Lord has been calling to sacrifice. Maybe it's something even good. But the Lord is calling you to lay it on the altar for him. Perhaps someone here tonight, you're being impressed to go to the mission field, to devote one year, to take one year out of college, to go to the mission field one year, two years, five years, ten years, whatever it may be. The Lord is calling you to sacrifice and place your life in the hands of God for one year. And, and, and you want to say, Lord, take my heart. I want to lay that on the altar tonight because of what Jesus has done. I want to respond to the call, recognizing that revolution that began in sacrifice will end in sacrifice. And I want to say, I want to lay myself on the altar tonight. I want to invite you to come forward tonight. Oh, Father in heaven, tonight our hearts are touched by the life of your servant, so unselfish, so devoted, with laser-like focus, he ran his course and he finished the race. The legacy of a man who lived and died for one cause and one cause alone in the revolution that started with a man that broke the ground, changed the world. And tonight we come to you as your people asking that you would help us to live in that legacy. Asking that you would help us to lay ourselves on the altar. We're tired of holding back. We're tired of keeping ourselves back and, and not giving our all to the Christ that gave everything. What more could heaven have done than already has been done? Lord, this is the multiple year of GYC. I love GYC, but I want to go home. And tonight is the night, the last night of 2012, that we believe that we can, by the grace of God, take the gospel to the world in this generation, whatever the cost, Lord, help me to pay it. Not because it has any merit, but because of what Jesus has done. I'm willing to lay myself on the altar. And whatever it is you call me to be, to live or to die, I want to be here tonight. May the world be changed by the ground that is broken and the seeds that are sown. Help us, Father. Do for us what we can't do for ourselves. But we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources, visit us online at gycweb.org.